Thanks, Jane, very much uh, indeed. I feel like a crocodile in a handbag factory. Uh, just at the moment. Uh, I thought Jim Hamilton preached a great word last week. Uh, if you were here, very timely. Uh, spoke to many of us in different ways. Uh, if you missed that, you need to get it. Uh, that does mean that we're behind in our I Relate series. And uh, these two things this morning need more than a message each, let alone one message for the whole lot. Uh, and I had wondered about spreading it uh, on to next week. Next week, though, is a dedication service, and that seemed harsh. Uh, and then I thought the week after, that's a baptism. Liam and uh, Peter, Peter Raybone and Liam Rutter get baptized in a fortnight's time, so clock that in, uh, in your diary. So that didn't seem right either. So here we go. We're going to combine sexuality and pornography and do it all in one hit, which means uh, it might be a long morning. If you think it's a long morning, uh, just console yourselves that it could have been two mornings. And uh, you can feel a lot better about that. Parents, this is the last uh, uh, ratings warning. Your children are your responsibility. I'm going to talk frankly and openly about these subjects. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when you raised Jesus to life, it was a bodily resurrection. A reminder that Jesus rescues every part of who we are. He saves my soul and rescues my body. He heals my emotions and restores my will. He rescues all of me. And so we bring all of ourselves this morning, our mind, our emotions, our souls, our spirits, our bodies, and we ask, speak to us, because your word to us is life indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay then, thinking about our series, I Relate, if you're just catching up with it, you can get all of it on the website, forward slash I relate. But it has at its, uh, at its core idea that at the beginning of time, at the center of the universe, when everything else is stripped away, the thing that began it all and the thing that will always remain is God himself. And at the heart of the way God has revealed himself to us, not just one person on his own, although he is that, he's also a person in relationship with himself, a intimate, self-giving, self-sustaining, serving each other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our cue our starting point to understand anything about our lives, about the human nature, and about relationships itself. That's what makes sense of why we relate to one another. That's what helps us understand what marriage is all about. And as I hope we'll see this morning, that's what also helps us make sense of what sex is all about as well. There were two dominant views of sex, and in some ways there still are, and Paul was very aware of both of them when he wrote those words that Jane uh, read to us just a few moments ago, and we see them played out in various ways in our day as well. The first is the Platonist view after the Greek philosopher Plato. Basically his idea was this, that the body is bad, and therefore sex must be dirty and bad and wrong as well. And what you and I need more than anything else is to be released from our bodies that is corrupt and fallen and all of that stuff. And uh, all we need is our souls to somehow get separated from our body and all that will be well. Now you can see how that promotes a view that sex is to be avoided, it's grubby, it's 
earthy. It's not to do with the higher things of life, which is all about your soul and your spirit. Some Christians have emphasized this tradition pretty strongly. They've behaved as if sex in some way is embarrassing or shameful. It's a bit grubby and dirty. You can't really talk about it or be honest about it. And good advice has been to certainly not enjoy it. Catholic tradition that advocates not using the birth control uh, has heavily responded to this tradition. They've listened particularly to an early theologian called Augustine, who himself was heavily influenced by Plato. Uh, and you can see how it works itself out. For, for, for that tradition, sex is only permitted for procreation, for getting pregnant and having babies and children, uh, because it, sex by nature is not something that's worth doing for itself because it's of the body and the body is grubby and dirty and so on. So having sex then becomes a necessary evil simply in order to have children. The other view that Paul was very much aware of in his day, encapsulated by the mystery religions, and perhaps is much more uh, familiar with the world in which we uh, operate today, is that sex is divine. It's something that you are free to give yourself to, free to indulge in. You can worship at its altar whenever you want, in whatever way you want. You can give it all the time and energy and attention that you'd like to. This represents the sex-saturated world that we live in. The Bible always and consistently steps back and contrasts its position with both of those views. It agrees with neither. The biblical view is always contrasted against both these traditions or positions. The Bible does two things. Firstly, it states straightforwardly and unequivocally that the context of sex is always always, always marriage. That's what the Bible does. We haven't got time to explore why I would say that so emphatically. If you're not on that page with me this morning, then read the Bible with an open heart, think about what it's there for, think about the gift that God has given, and draw your own conclusion as to what you believe the Bible would say about uh, sex. The Bible states clearly and unequivocally that the context for sex is marriage. But then it celebrates sex in ways that would make the average Christian blush. Are you ready? Kidding. Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth. And basically he's saying, if you look at verse 5 of uh, chapter 7, make sure if you're married that you're having a lot of sex. Song of Songs the most erotic love poem, is softened by translators because of the sensitivities of them thinking, golly, this is going to be read out in public in churches up and down the land. That concentrates your mind as to which words you might choose to use. They want to sell the Bible. And when we went to uh, through Song of Songs uh, last year, sometime I think it was, I pointed out some of those ways in which the translators kind of just whistled at the appropriate moment, rather than spell it out as the Hebrew actually does. So there in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7, make sure you're having a lot of sex, because the only reason not to have sex if you're married is for prayer and fasting. And Paul knows what we all know, that most Christians don't do much prayer and fasting. So that's a lot of sex. But, equally, verse 16 of chapter 6, make sure you don't misuse what God has given. There is both in the Bible a protection for sex and a promotion of it. And that, in essence, is the Bible's view on sex 
and therefore sexuality. There is nowhere, nowhere that you will find a higher view of sex than in the Bible. The imagery of the Bible is incredibly stark. Tim Keller puts it like this, the ecstasy and joy of sex was invented by God as a glimpse of the intimacy and closure that will be ours when we see God on that day and enter into unity with him. Think with me about some of the big themes, the big images of the Bible. In the Old Testament, Israel is often pictured as the bride that finds her ultimate fulfillment in the arms of God. The church in the New Testament is similarly, in the same way, often described as the bride that will find its ultimate or her ultimate fulfillment in uniting with Jesus at the end of time. Remember what we talked about at the beginning of this series, the open trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, this relationship that is at the heart of the universe into which amazingly and incredibly you and I are invited. That's our true home. That's the place of ultimate fulfillment. And marriage is a God-given sign that points to that truth as two people unite A reminder that our ultimate fulfillment is not in any human relationship, but our ultimate fulfillment is in uniting with God himself. Marriage is a God-given signpost to that truth, and sex is the climactic expression of that unity. And I've chosen my words carefully and deliberately. That's the image that the Bible paints for us, a higher view of sex than you will find anywhere on planet earth. Look at Romans 7 just for a moment. Flip your Bibles over uh, to Romans 7. Okay, we all relaxed? Yeah, good. Okay, Romans 7. Verse 1. What's the page number, by the way, someone? 1133, 1133, if you've got a Bible just in front of you. 1, verse 1, Do not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Verse 2, For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That was so important. It was so important. She needed to be released so she could uh, still be uh, able to have an heir, a son. She could still able to bear fruit and therefore continue her family name and provide provision for it. It wasn't a nicety. It was a necessary thing. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, that's no go. She's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, then she's released from the law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. And what... Uh, 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 All the readers will know is there was obligation on the brothers to provide the duty of the husband in that case. So incredibly strong imagery. And then something amazing at verse 4. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Think about the imagery. Just as a woman puts herself in the arms of her husband and children are born, 
So you put yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. Fruit is born in the world through you. Sex is a signpost, an analogy of the intimacy and of the closure that all of us crave. That intimacy, that closure that ultimately is only found in Jesus and will be ours when we see him face to face. How amazing is that? I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine. So with that really high view of sex, the Bible offers several reasons for it. The first one is obvious, procreation. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. But if that's all sex is, If sex is restricted and restrained, then we're heading towards that Platonist view. That sex is is of no value in itself, it's simply a means to another end. So we need to remember that sex is for pleasure, and the Bible unashamedly celebrates the fact that sex is for pleasure. Men, it might not be your uh, habit to take notes, this is a good verse to write down. It might become your life verse. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Didn't have time to look at the, uh, the Hebrew behind that, but I think it's got the idea of being ravished at your wife's breasts. No time, again, to explore the Song of Songs, which is a whole book all about the pleasure of intimacy and says nothing about childbearing, procreation at all. This pleasure, of course, is not self-seeking. If you read the Song of Songs carefully, it's a self-giving love, which makes it so distinct and so attractive and so different from the kind of pleasure-seeking that we see in our world. But nevertheless, if you stop there, just procreation, you're up with the Platonist view, uh, just a, a pleasure, you're, you're tempted to be down at the mystery religion end of things, you have to remember another P. Sex is given for permanence. For permanence. Be united to your wife and they will become one flesh. Sex is a way of cementing and enabling a relationship of unique oneness. It's the way you are able to say, I belong completely and utterly to you. It's God's gift, God's apparatus, if you like, of being able to express something that you cannot express merely in words itself. But to have physical union, sex without the union of all the other things that make up a relationship, is a monstrosity. It frustrates the very purpose for which God gave sex in the first place. Physical union has to have the same context as every other union. Social, legal, financial, psychological, emotional, spiritual. 
That's the whole point of what Paul is saying. Again, back in 1 Corinthians 16, about you've got to remember, when you have sex, cyber sex, real sex, whatever sex you like, you become one flesh. Remember, it's a monstrosity to use something that's about one flesh in another way, to say something else, to achieve another end. Do you not know he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Do we realize what we are doing when we use sex as the unifying factor when all the other factors are not in place? This is so important. It would have saved loads of heartache for some of us had we sussed it earlier. It will save you guys loads of heartache if you get this right now. Sex is your God-given way, deeper than any words possible, more powerful than anything else on earth, to say, I belong completely and utterly to you. You see, in sex, you're naked before somebody else. You're physically very vulnerable But it's a gross distortion to say, I want to be naked before you. I want to be vulnerable before you physically. But I do not want to be vulnerable in any other way. I'm not going to give you my heart. But if I marry you, comes the reply, if I marry you, I'll I'll be at your mercy. If I marry you, I'll be committed to you. If I marry you, I'll be vulnerable to you in all kinds of ways. Psychologically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, socially, legally, I'll be vulnerable, exposed to you. Exactly. Which is why sex becomes so appropriate. I belong completely and utterly to you. When we use it any other way, we utterly destroy what it was given for. It's the cement that reinforces your relationship. Every time you make love, you reinforce your relationship, providing the other factors of unity are in place. If they're not present... Sex, instead of reinforcing, instead of being the cement, causes the whole thing to spiral backwards. It undoes things rather than knits things together. If you have sex without all those other unities, it begins to destroy your ability to be vulnerable with someone. If you have sex without those other unities, then sex increasingly means less and less and becomes more and more just a physical act. And if you use sex for any other purpose than cementing a permanent relationship, then you have nothing left with which to say, I totally and exclusively belong to you. Because you've used it. It's gone. All these strands are wonderfully woven into the scriptures. Just one example, but it's everywhere. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Uh, You can't see it in the uh, NIV, but if you read the King James Version of the Bible, uh, it says, Adam knew Eve. 
The King James gives us a clue. You see, in the Scriptures, it's the same word. To have married sex is the same word as to know somebody completely. How cool is that? Hebrews brilliantly nuanced. Cain was born not through a physical act, and I know that he was, hang with me. Cain was born not through a physical act, but through a knowledge of each other, Adam and Eve, an understanding of each other, a uniting of each, of each other at every level of their lives. Adam knew Eve. They were both naked and so much deeper than not just having clothes. So you get procreation and permanence, and we can only assume the pleasure that they shared. A pleasure that God intended. God didn't make Adam and Eve go off for a coffee, come back finding them at it and think, goodness gracious, if only I'd known, I I wouldn't have made them like that. One last reflection here before we move on. Because sex is the cement, your ability to say I belong totally and exclusively to you, for it to last for sex to last, for sex to be enriched, for sex to be exciting and enthralling, the other unities, so important, the other unities need to keep growing as well. You need to be growing spiritually, growing emotionally, growing psychologically, growing in your social awareness, the two becoming one, I becoming two eyes becoming we, and so on. I'm no sex therapist, obviously, but sex becomes dull, boring, and routine if it's divorced of passion, sorry, sex becomes dull, boring and routine, divorced of passion and intimacy. Why? Not because you don't wear that underwear as much as you used to. Or not because the candlelight dinners are less. And not even because now you only brush your teeth once a month. (laughs) Sex becomes dull, boring and routine. Sex becomes divorced of passion and intimacy. Usually, Because the other unifying factors are not strongly in place or growing in their strength. Let me give you just one outworking of this principle. Sexual arousal changes over time. In the early days, if you hold your girlfriend's hand, you'll get sexually aroused. Girls, you might not believe it, but it's true. If he says it's not true, then he's lying to you. In early marriage... The romance, the candlelight, the lingerie are all important, all good things. If you miss that stage, then go back and enjoy them for goodness sake. And I'm not advocating that you should leave that stage altogether, but understand the context in which I'm saying this. Over time, it does change. Those things are less important as the deeper issues of your uniting take more prominence. 10, 20 years on in your marriage, what matters more, what is most sexually stimulating is not necessarily those early things. What is most sexually stimulating is the degree to which you truly know each other. To be understood, this person really knows me and understands me. I can be vulnerable to a whole new level. As the commitment grows, intimacy grows, somebody understands you. What makes great sex in your marriage is to have someone see all the way inside you. See what you believe, who you really are, someone who knows you, loves you, is excited about you, who accepts you. 
If your sex life is not what you want it to be, it's probably an indication, and I know there are loads of other reasons, it's probably an indication that your relationship is out of kilter somewhere else. One of the reasons the Bible is clear about marrying someone that shares your faith is for exactly this reason. You see, as as your relationship goes on, you might think in the early days it doesn't matter very much. We can get by with us not agreeing on that. But this is what happens. If you're a Christian, Christ is at the centre of your life. And as you journey through life, it is increasingly hard to have someone keep looking inside you and not understand you. It is increasingly hard to have someone seeing your heart and not wanting to unite with it. Or maybe not even seeing your heart at all. It makes uniting in all other aspects of your relationship, including sex, so much more difficult. The Bible has this very high view of sex that Christians must celebrate. A third way, it's not dirty to be avoided, it's not divine to be worshipped, it's a delight to be celebrated. Church always makes such a big deal of sex, everybody says that, everyone mentions that pastors and ministers and churches and everything go on about sex. Let me tell you why. It's because it's one of the things most closest to our hearts, to the core of who we are, it's built into the depths of our being, and when we mess that up, It screws us up like few other things. And the reason the church goes on about it, the reason pastors go on about it, is because they spend a lot of their time seeing it. Because that's just the truth. We're going to look at one of those now. uh, Pornography. And see how when we get a distortion, it wreaks such havoc in our lives. Because sex is so close to the core of who we are. Sex is the core, almost, of our being, which gives us the amazing capacity to say, I love you and I'm completely devoted to you. But if we screw it up, then it causes untold damage. C.S. Lewis, the English uh, writer, uh, dead now, uh, made a, a BBC radio talk, and some of you will have heard it or heard it referenced before. And he says this, just imagine if you go to a country like this, And you notice in a country like this that when young men go off to college, the first thing in their halls of residence that they do is to put up great big life-size posters on the walls of their bedrooms. Great big colour photos that they cannot avoid seeing whenever they are in the room. All over their walls there are these great pictures of food, Big Macs, fries, whatever they like. And the guys go from room to room poring over each other's posters. And then they drive off and they spend some money to enter a club, low light stumping, grinding music, everyone gathered around the stage, tongues hanging out, and slowly the covers are being pulled away rhythmically in time with the music. At last you can see it all. Everything's been stripped bare. Roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. You would say those people must be starving to behave like that. And then you explore their culture and you realise that these people have got more food than they can eat and they're eating like crazy and yet still they're totally obsessed. Lewis says you would only have to conclude in a society like that that something was deeply disordered about their appetite for food. He's not talking about food. 
Sex has become deeply disordered. And pornography is one symptom of that. We need to talk about pornography's reality. And I can understand that we shouldn't talk about this in church. Isn't this the shameful deeds of darkness that Paul would say that has no place amongst respectable Christianity? I rang my mum on Thursday. She was at an airport flying off and I caught her just before she took her flight. And uh, not long into the conversation, she asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm writing a sermon on sexuality and pornography. It was a bit of a conversation stopper to say that to your mum, I can tell you. And then she said what many of us say, I've never heard a sermon on that before. My mum's been in churches for 70 plus years. We need to talk about pornography's reality. A recent survey suggests that 50%, every other man, every other Christian man, is addicted to pornography. And that 20%, one in five women, are also addicted to pornography. Uh, A leader like me didn't believe the statistics, and so he did a survey in his own church reported in Christianity magazine. 60% of his congregation had looked at porn over the last year, and 25% in the last 30 days. Other surveys suggest it's not much better for leaders, if at all. It's not an issue for men, it's an issue for women too. Women use porn differently, typically, not so much visual but it's around erotic fiction. Fifty Shades of Grey is an obvious example of this. The pervasive plague of pornography is one of the greatest moral challenges, says one evangelical leader, facing the Christian church in in the postmodern age. Tim Chester writes, in our churches we need to talk about porn. Don't assume people are free from porn until they tell you they are not. Ask the question, ask everyone you disciple or pastor whether porn is an issue for them. It must be some other church, surely, not ours. I just want to tell you one thing that I've observed. Uh, I don't know, was it September when we put out the list of themes? I have had more people contact me in a whole variety of ways in this church about today's sermon than probably all the contacts in advance about a coming up theme for the whole 17 years I've been here. It's an issue for us. We need to talk about pornography's destruction. It destroys the gift of sex. Pornography is taking sex and using it not only in the context where there isn't a permanent relationship, which is what it was for, but using it in the context where there is no relationship at all. In that sense, it's a massive distortion of what God gave it to us for. And instead of sex being a cement that joins me to another, it becomes a fantasy. A fantasy that takes this gift to a place that is less and less connected to real life and the real world. That less and less has a grip on reality. Real sex, therefore, becomes increasingly difficult, sometimes impossible, because it becomes so desensitized and divorced from love for another. The focus becomes lust. What can I get to titillate me? What can I get to satisfy my base sexual urges, rather than love, which is all about what can I give to this person? 
Not to mention, too, that pornographic sex needs to become increasingly weird, further unhinged from reality, in order for us to gain the same arousal that we used to, and so on. We become desensitized. Here is a testimony from someone in our church who was shown pornographic material as a child. I think the average age a child first sees something pornographic is 11. If your kids are teenagers, make sure you've talked to them. If you haven't, statistically, you may already be too late. This is really important. As a child, I was shown pornographic magazines and DVDs. This has had a major impact on my life with some very hard consequences because of it. Firstly, it has taken away my innocence and experience of how God intended a loving sexual relationship between a man and a woman in a married relationship. For me, it made sex a dirty, lustful and shameful experience not a loving, cherished one like it should be. It has caused many problems in my own life with how I view myself, my body, and how I should be treated as a woman. It has caused many problems with my relationships with men. Closely related to pornography is masturbation. These two things are linked and both can be an addiction like alcohol, drugs, or gambling. Such things have a stronghold in our lives and control us, not the other way around. I had believed so many lies from the devil about my body. How I view sex because of that day I was shown those images as a child. From that day my innocence was taken away and my world changed for the worst. But I can say with my hand on my heart that I forgave that person. And God has given me for my actions, and God has forgiven me for my actions from that day to the present time. I do not live with shame, guilt or condemnation anymore. I'm forgiven and my Father in heaven loves me. I'm his child and he loves me just the way I am. He knows my past and he knows my future. I'm free. Know God's truth and the truth will set you free. I'm starting to be the person God created me to be. If there's anyone who's struggling with this in their lives, know this, you're not alone. God loves you and cares for you, but it has to stop. And you have to submit it to God. Tell someone who can pray with you, God is the only one who can set you free. Secondly, pornography destroys the gift of sex. There we go, sorry. And secondly, pornography destroys marriage. A little bit of porn can go an awful long way. Someone said, porn has damaged my marriage. To be honest, it means I don't delight in my wife as much because I've looked at other women. It's also hurt my wife because I've essentially cheated on her by masturbating over other women. To state the obvious, the secret that lies hidden in your relationship will be destroying it. Sex becomes a reenactment of of porn, performance, not the relationship that matters. Your own satisfaction, not how much you can satisfy, becomes the focus. Porn has been described as a cancer eating away at your marriage. And thirdly, pornography destroys you. It's an addiction like every other addiction. Sucks you in. It will master you unless you master it. G.K. Chesterton, the moment sex ceases to be a servant, it becomes a tyrant. And some of us here will know from painful experience that the tyrant moves in. The tyrant takes over and is never 
satisfied. Like all addictions, the very thing that seemed attractive, the very thing that seemed satisfying, the very thing that seemed, this is what I need, in the end, becomes an insatiable monster demanding more of you, more time, more energy, more resources, more self-esteem is washed away. All your confidence ebbs away at the front of the computer screen. Like all addictions, drug, alcohol, gambling, shopping, pornography will relentlessly pursue its victim. And it does. Apparently someone told me that on Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, anyway, one lunchtime, the Jeremy Vine show reflected on the use of pornography at work. People so addicted they can't get through the day's work without viewing pornography online and, of course, getting fired as a result. But we need to talk about grace. We need to talk about grace. You see, this is where the whole thing meets Jesus. This is where the whole thing makes sense as to what we're talking about today. You see, because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, because on the cross was nailed to that cross every ugly thought you've ever had, every dirty thought, every mistaken action, every aligning yourself to something ungodly, all of that goes on Jesus. Hey, no wonder it went dark. All of it on him. He invites us today to confess our sins. And if we confess our sins brilliantly, he will forgive us. That's what it says. He will forgive us our sins. That is an amazing thing. That the God in heaven will choose not to hold our sins against us. But more amazing still, Not only will he forgive our sins, but he will cleanse us or purify us, as the most recent uh, NIV translates it. It'll say cleanse in Bible in the pew, I think. Uh, Purify us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness and purification. Forgiveness and cleansing. And you will know, you long for God's forgiveness. But what you also know is you need to be cleansed from the inside out to live a new kind of way. That's what you need. And you know that's what you need. And Jesus offers it here. Forgiveness at the cross. Another member of our church has written so powerfully about this particular aspect of pornography. About how pornography is a, it's like a disease that affects everything. And you don't just need God to forgive you, but you need that whole virus to be rooted out of your system so you can live in a, a new way. I'm a married man. This is not from a book. This is someone in our church. I'm a married man and I've struggled with pornography on and off for many years, despite the fact that I've been a Christian through all of that time. For all of that time, it's been a sickness in my life that ate away at my soul, distorting my perception of women and have been the source of much difficulty in the way I've related to my female friends, colleagues and even my wife. Looking back, I can see that through pornography, I had unwittingly given the devil power to gain a foothold in my life. That for more than 20 years, he has used as a conduit to feed all manner of perversions, fantasies and negativity into me. Without acknowledging the scale of the problem, or even that this was a problem at all, I was willingly placing an obstacle in the way of my relationship with God and vastly limiting the effectiveness I could have for him. I developed feelings of deep self-loathing that gave me low self-esteem and I actively kept my distance from God, feeling like I wasn't worthy of his love and attention. These feelings fed a cycle of depravity 
And even when I tried to step away from it all, the devil was always there offering up that bittersweet temptation just a couple of clicks away. The problem is, even when you've stopped, it has threaded its way through your consciousness and the taint lingers like some insidious virus. I found unwholesome thoughts and images popping into my head at random times like some uninvited guest that's hard to get rid of. I just cannot overstate the long-term consequences of allowing pornography into your life. One of the verses that God has spoken most powerfully to me in regards to this area is Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you must, not, you, you must not be guilty of adultery. But I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman and wants to sin sexually with her, in his mind he has already done that sin with the woman. Wow. You couldn't get more hard-hitting than that. If Jesus speaks truth in these verses, and I believe he does, then if I'm serious about Jesus and about my wife, I have to say I've committed adultery in the past. I can hardly even write the words now. I'm forcing myself to think about it after praying and asking God to strengthen me. The really good news is that whilst Jesus is all about repentance, he's also all about forgiveness. If I can just have the strength to admit my weakness before God and repent, I know that he'll forgive me and help me to change. The crux is that I cannot be forgiven and I cannot change if I first do not repent. It's only been in the last two years that I've managed to gain control over this area in my life. And only then with the loving support of my wife and much prayer and healing. It's been a hard journey learning to be accountable to my wife, admitting my weakness and humbling myself to her. After all, aren't I supposed to be the strong one in the family unit, setting the direction in which we will go in life? I've come to understand that to honour my marriage and keep it pure, I have to share everything with my wife, especially the difficult things. I am almost too embarrassed to admit to myself, let alone speak out loud to someone else. God placed my wife in a position of support and encouragement to me, and in order for me to be an effective serving leader of my family, he demands that I allow her to fulfill that role to its full potential. The simple truth is that God has given me and my wife the ability, with his help, to make our marriage not just one that survives, but one that is a great marriage. He wants our example to be a witness for him, to throw his light and love into the lives of those we, do, uh, we share our lives with. He wants our children to look at us and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they will settle for nothing less than what their parents have. I know that my struggle with this weakness and shame is shared by many men and how difficult it is to talk about it. I also know that the only way to conquer darkness is to shed light onto it. This struggle is an embarrassing one that should not be dealt with alone and is extremely difficult to overcome alone. You need to know that these people understand how hard and how painful it is and uh, 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 all came freely offering to share stories in order to help convey something of the depth of feeling and the power of what God can do in a person's life. We need to talk about the good news of sex, which is why I started the way that I did and spent a lot of time on it it's, uh, uh, this morning. We need to talk about God's new life. You see, what we tend to do is we, we, we make choices that aren't the full uh, uh, story. There's a cake on the table. I mustn't eat the cake. So I'm thinking about not eating the cake. What I mustn't do is eat the cake. The cake's there on the table. I'm going to put it in a box now because I mustn't eat the cake that's on the table, but I'm thinking about the cake. What will inevitably happen? I'm going to eat the cake. Because we set up this false situation that my life can be with the cake or without. My life can be with porn or without. That's not the deal. 
Your life can be without porn and with Jesus that's so much better. That's the deal. It's not a comparison of life with or without. If we get locked into that cycle, we'll be consumed by those things that seek to consume us. We need to see porn for what it is, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. You see, porn lies to us. We believe it offers respect. So we enter into this fantasy world where we can live out what we want to believe about ourselves. We believe it offers us a substitute for intimacy, a way to relax, a way to escape. We believe it may offer even revenge to a a wife or a husband that won't offer to us sexually what we think we deserve. But all of it's lies and it delivers nothing of those things. John Piper, always a safe bet, puts it like this. The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. So something like this must be fought with something like this. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, I must not eat that cake, I must not click onto that site, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, even with the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with a massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasures in the conflagration, or conflagration, sorry, of holy, can't even say it, of holy satisfaction. It's a glorious truth that we want to say no to that so we can embrace this. And that's a whole different way of choosing to live. And so we need to talk to each other. The first step to healing is to bring what's in the dark into the light. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There are two types of people probably here. There are those who have learnt a little bit of what it means to confess their sins to another human being and seen massive, massive release of God's healing. And there are other people who just don't get that and think they don't need to do that. Because if God's God, he'll heal me and I don't need to tell anybody. This is what God's word says. Confess to each other that you might be healed. And as you begin to walk that out, you realize how amazingly significant that is. Not just for healing, but also for holiness. You see, accountability is so important. If we conceal our sins, we do not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them, fine finds mercy. So there are people that I have the porn conversation with because they've invited me to do that. Because they've asked me to hold them accountable. They've asked me to draw them aside and say, are you looking at something you shouldn't? There are other people in this church who've got software on their computer that will send me a list of all the sites they've ever visited in the last week or questionable sites that they might have visited in the last week. You might say, what? What a hassle. What an incredible invasion of my privacy. But they might say, what a small price to pay for the freedom God brings. It's what Jesus said. That if it causes you to sin, cut it off. Origen, an early church father, struggled in this area, so he literally cut it off. I want to give you another alternative. And in the light of that possibility, talking to someone might seem suddenly much more reasonable. (laughs) Putting some software on your computer that filters what you look at or holds you accountable to someone else might suddenly feel just a very little step for a big impact in your life. 
Hey, I'm celebrating with someone at the moment that this month will have gone a whole year porn-free. How cool is that? Jesus has healed them in an incredible way. It would have been a time when going 24 hours porn-free seemed impossible. That's the power of the gospel. It's what Jesus does in our lives. That's what the cross is all about. On my blog, I've put some links and some resources. Uh, blog yeah, went live at 12 o'clock, so it'll be there whenever you want it. Uh, some stuff there. Uh, uh, blog, link, link on front page of our site, whatever it is, on the service sheet somewhere. Down on the right-hand side is a link to, to my blog. You can find it all there. What's in the dark will keep you enslaved. Every person I know who's found freedom and healing has needed in some measure to bring it into the light. I'm not suggesting you share it with the whole church. I'm not suggesting you share it with your whole pew. But I tell you, some of us need to talk. And it's serious. And we need to talk to ourselves. Well, you need to talk to your spouse as well. You see, if it remains in the dark in your marriage, it'll, it'll destroy you. Now, I don't say that lightly. Don't dance home and shout it out to your spouse. You'd be a fool. Massive sensitivity. Huge understanding. Gather people around you. Get, get it sorted. Do it properly. Do it well. But we can't keep these things in the dark. And we need to talk to ourselves. Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Have you made that covenant? Men and women. Made a covenant with my God, not to read something that will draw me emotionally, as you women are more naturally inclined to be drawn emotionally, and take you to a fantasy place that's just as bad, maybe not as physical, but just as bad, has exactly the same addictions, builds exactly the same walls. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I've got one final story. Another person in this church gloriously uh, found the love and the grace of God as we come to clothes. I was first exposed to porn accidentally. I found a porn mag from one of my relatives and soon realised that this would provide a steady stream of relatively easy access to porn. First access was probably when I was about 10. I can still remember the locations and the pictures of the penthouse magazines that were seared onto my mind. I can still remember the rush of the find and the possibility of being caught. I didn't get caught though as I was too careful. I was petrified of being found out and so I'd put everything back exactly as I found it and would only look when I knew everyone was out of the house. As I grew up, I found school difficult and I was an easy target for bullies. I struggled to fit, uh, I struggled to fit in and porn and masturbation were an easy escape. Became my, it became more frequent until it was pretty much a daily habit. My habit switched to late night TV and the free teasers of certain channels. When the internet came along, that too became one of my sources for frequent porn viewing and masturbation. The internet is frightening as it gives you a world of easy, anonymous, responsibility-free viewing. For safety, I would always delete my viewing history and even install new versions of browsers to delete old histories and links. I became quite adept at hiding my tracks. The frequency that I looked at porn also increased to being pretty much every night. Often late into the night and affecting how I felt the next day, it's fair to say I was truly hooked on porn. I know how easy it is to find porn and as technology evolves more and more avenues open up. So parents, please don't ignore this. If you don't know what your kids are viewing late at night, then there's a high chance it's porn. However, throughout all of this period, I was a Christian 
and an active one at that. I'd regularly attend church, camps, Bible study groups. I'd read my Bible every day and plead my heart to God for forgiveness. I would pray, please forgive me for looking at porn. Please help me stop. But I didn't. And often after a few hours, I would be back at the computer or TV. My porn addiction carried on through to my marriage. I was honest with my girlfriend, wife-to-be, and this was the first starting point to freedom. Letting someone else know, let the light in on my dark world, and I'm so relieved that I let my wife know before we were married. She still married me and has helped me ever since. I thought the marriage would help me, and in truth it did. It diverted the attention, but the craving was still there. Human willpower and the love of others helped, but I was still slipping quite frequently. Things began to improve, though, when I mentally gave up. I couldn't do this on my own human willpower. I sought prayer from friends, and that was a key moment as they began to pray powerful things for me. They opened my eyes up to the spiritual battle for my life and how my addiction was all part of Satan's spiritual battle for my life. I was shown that porn is a lie. Porn is not sexy. It's not free. It's not a release from the burden of life. It's not easier than a loving relationship. Porn... It's it's a lie that porn won't affect my marriage. It's a lie that porn won't hurt my wife. Through prayer, we tackled the subject that every porn addict must face. Why are you looking at porn? For me, porn was a side effect of a broken and crying child inside. God showed me how truly traumatic and personal events in my past had torn my life apart. I'd chosen to forget and ignore these events as a defense mechanism and put a wall around me. Porn was a wonderful way of putting bricks in this wall and distracting from the main issues. God helped me take down those bricks one by one to reveal the foundations of those walls. With much gentle, loving persuasion, God helped me forgive those who'd screwed my life up from the start. That was the key moment, understanding, a chance to gain perspective on why things had happened and why I'd become addicted to porn and masturbation. With this new perspective of love and understanding, I was able to see the lies that Satan was spinning around me. Porn won't hurt my wife. Porn is just a bit of fun. The girls love it. I'm just curious. Well, with my new perspective and correct understanding of spiritual warfare and sin, see Romans, Romans 7 would be a good place to start, I've been able to shoot down the flaming arrows of lies and I've been free from addiction for nearly two years. Sorry, God is great and the power of forgiveness is significantly more powerful than any of Satan's lies. Remember that porn is a lie and lies comes from Satan. This is a spiritual battle. And don't forget who has won the spiritual battle. Jesus. He wants to rescue us all if only we will let him. I asked Jesus why I couldn't stop looking at porn and he showed me. He wants to show you too and expose the lies you are believing about porn. Porn is a symptom of a broken heart. And the only one who can heal broken hearts is Jesus. I reached out to him and he saved me, my wife and my family. He wants to save you too. God does work miracles. But if porn is an instant fix that quickly leads to addiction, then the healing was long, slow and painful. God was moulding me into the way he wanted by removing one lie at a time. It's not finished and I still struggle and slip occasionally. But although the odd battle may be lost, the war has already been won. Satan has been defeated. As Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. When the truth exposed the deep lies, then I was indeed set free. Hallelujah. It's time to talk. If you're where these people were, it's time to start talking to someone. You need help. And Satan's biggest lie is this. If you tell someone, they will reject you because they'll think you're too awful. They won't. If they do, send them to me. But they won't. 
Second lie Satan will give you is this. You can never change. It's half true. You can never change. But Jesus can do a miracle in your life. If you're a spouse and you're suspicious, you need to start talking. Talking to God for sure and maybe a friend. And some of you have known fantastic healing in this area. Maybe God's stirring you today to be part of the answer for others in our church. If you're willing to help, if you sense God nudging you about that, then come and talk to me about it. Let's pray.